0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com
1: slash four keys and download your free copy. We did research. We did focus groups with top women, with our GMs. And what we found from the women was that when they played and competed at the highest levels, all of our players wear headsets. I mean, if you're going to play at an elite level, you have to have a headset and communicate with your teammates. And what happened was, as soon as they kind of identified as a woman with a woman's voice, they got past the ball less. You know, they, they were harassed at times. It was, it was a kind of a toxic environment for them. And so they were getting past the ball less often than, uh, than, than, than other, their, male, their male counterparts. And so as a result, if we're evaluating statistics, of course, their statistics are going to be less if, you know, if they're not getting as many opportunities. And so um, so we then in season two, we worked with our analytics company to start um, analyzing players, how effective they were when they actually got the ball.
2: that's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Brendan, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Of course, Sereni, Great to meet you and I'm excited to chat.
2: I am absolutely thrilled to have you here. So I actually found out about you by way of our former guest, Scott, uh, who was the CEO of the Philadelphia 76ers. And when he told me that you're the commissioner of the NBA 2K League, I thought, yes, I absolutely have to talk to him. I play this damn game every single day. And my roommate is kicking my ass, so maybe you can help me solve that problem. Uh, But all joking aside, before we get into what you do, uh, I want to start by asking, what did your parents do for work and how did that end up shaping Uh, the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career?
1: Wow, great question. Um, So two very different paths. So um, my father was the CFO of a hospital at a very young age. Um, I think in his late 20s. He was the CFO of a hospital in Long Island, New York. Um, And I can remember him taking me to work sometimes. And I was always blown away at just how he just knew everybody. I mean, from, you know, walking in the back entrance, he knew the maintenance staff. He knew the CEO. He knew, he just knew everybody and he was just friendly with everyone. And that always stuck out, that just stuck out to me as a pretty cool trait. Um, so that was my dad. And, and he, I'll get into kind of, uh, I'll connect the dots between him and my mom in a second. But my mom, um, so I am the youngest of six kids, um, you know, from, you know, we all grew up, with, I grew up in Long Island, like I said. And my mom actually, was in a nurse, went to nursing school. And then she, essentially when she had my oldest brother stopped and she, you know, she was, wor- she was a mom for, you know, uh, you know, roughly 16 years. She was focused on raising her family and being a mom and an incredible one, like, you know, with, with homework and everything else, she was always kind of super, super attentive. And then when I went to kindergarten, she actually went back to uh, being a nurse and doing, um, you know, working for a home care agency as a nurse. And then, you know, she was putting in so many hours. um, When I was a freshman, sophomore in high school, so, uh, you know, fast forward, that's about 10 years or so from when she started going back to work. Her and my sisters, you know, decided like, listen, why don't you start your own home care agency? And so my mom did just that. And my dad actually helped her. He, um, you know, he was at a different hospital in Connecticut. Um, unfortunately, um, you know, his job didn't work out. And so he ended up becoming the CFO of my mom's home care agency. Um, and so, I mean, talk about a remarkable, like, you know, I, I'm obviously my dad was an incredible executive and my mom, you know, to, to watch her go from, you know, totally like committed to being a mom and, and raising kids, six kids at that. And mm-hmm. then, uh, and then starting her own business and being an incredibly successful executive, um, and I will say like a really good business leader for someone who had very little practical business experience. Uh, but, you know, just seeing her build relationships and, you know, and just hustle and lead by example, uh, you know, and and I will say being an incredibly strong example of a woman in business, I, I will say I mean, it was a pretty, pretty powerful uh, kind of foundation I was given.
2: Yeah. Wow. Uh, so I, I have to ask about, you know, six kids uh, what did growing up in such a big family teach you about navigating relationships, human behavior, uh, and out of morbid curiosity, what's the age gap and which sibling are you closest to and why?
1: Yeah. So there's 11 years between the oldest and youngest. Um, we're the Brady bunch. So there's three boys and three girls. (laughs) Um, I'm the youngest. I guess I'm Bobby. Um, but, uh, and, uh, so as far as closeness, I think I'm probably closest to my second oldest brother, uh, just, and I, I, you know, just, we were kind of similar in terms of, you know, our competitiveness and, and just, you know, our drive probably. Um, and then, uh, your other question was about just kind of interacting and relationships. Um, yeah,
2: I mean, a family of six is massive. I mean, I, you know, I only have one sibling, so I, I always wonder this about people who have huge families.
1: Well, ma- massive family, but like I would say, like tight head, tight quarters. I mean, you know, we, we were, uh, you know, we had all the kids shared one bathroom, and uh, you know, there was all the boys were in one bedroom, and my two, my three sisters shared two, two other bedrooms, so it was tight. I, I, sl- I slept in one of those, like you know, beds that had a, dr- it was a pullout, a pullout drawer that I slept in. Um, but uh, you know, I think the biggest thing I learned. Um, and this is something I almost had to unlearn was how we communicated. Like, you know, in that big of a family communication was, it was, it was so passionate and like interactive. And like, if you didn't lean in, you weren't hurt. And Mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, really kind of like, you know, we, and we would also just the way we were set up kind of family wise, how we interacted and communicated with each other, we would have just brawls and like, you know, and we'd be very uh, argumentative and passionate, but then like, you know, it was, you know, it melted away the second you were done with it. It was, it was over, and you, you were back to being family. And so, I actually probably had to adjust a little bit in how I communicated to people who might have grown up in normal households that didn't have that, where you know, uh, I could, I could, you know, uh, get after it and like, you know, banter with somebody, and then just like two seconds later, I was fine. Like, I didn't, I didn't mind if they had kind of come at me a little bit hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, in in normal society, I guess I had to make that adjustment.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, so, you know, it, it's funny. You mentioned your mother going from being a, a mother of six kids to you know starting a business to becoming an executive. And there's this quote that immediately came to my mind when you uh, said that. Have you ever seen the, the TV show Brothers and Sisters with Sally Field?
1: No, and I'm an avid okay. content content uh, consumer, so no, I know I'm, I'm bummed. Okay,
2: so there, there, there's this quote where she, you know, the, you know, not to ruin it for anybody, but, you know, she ends up, you know, losing her husband at the very beginning of, of the series. And she goes in to pitch some investors uh, on a business idea for some sort of center that she wants to open. And, uh, you know, they basically question her lack of experience. And so she goes out to dinner with one of the investors who only agrees to meet her because of her, her ex, you know, her, her husband who had passed away, who had built this very successful business. And. He basically questions her experience. And in response, she says, I organized the schedules of five extremely well-rounded children. I ran carpools, bake sales, and bluebird groups. I negotiated, coddled, and mandated all at the same time, not to mention what I had to do for my husband to keep him happy and productive. And I did all of this without taking a sick day. The problem is no one values the experience of a stay-at-home parent, which is truly ashamed. because running this big enterprise, as you put it, would be a day at the beach for me. (laughs) <laughs> and so, I I and I love that. That's probably my favorite moment in the show. And what I wanted to ask you is, what does it take for somebody to build that within themselves, that level of sort of conviction and resourcefulness?
1: Hmm, I, I think um, my guess is that, you know, my parents came from, I would argue, what is one of the coolest generations of parents you know, in, 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 one of the coolest ones in history in terms of, you know, for them, all of, all of my grandparents came over from Ireland, uh, you know, kind of came to the U S and really started their lives and like, didn't have much to work with and they just made it happen. And so I think that generation, at least for me, you know, I don't know and there's obviously been books written about that generation, but I think they all installed this, this sense of, you know, just get it done. I don't want to hear your excuses. And so mm-hmm. I I th- I think you know my mom had that installed in her by her parents and just seeing them operate um and so I I I think that was a big piece of it um and listen and I and I don't know what it you know when or or how it was installed in her but she just had this you know she had an incredible work ethic um you know I guess I would to use a sports analogy, both on and off the court. I mean, she was she went a hundred percent plus at work, but then also she didn't come home and like you know complain. Oh, I worked all day. Like you know, you got to take care of this. She was at all my basketball games. You know, she was always present. She was you know pushing me to work hard on my studies. You know, it was um, and my dad did too. My dad was also you know, and I would say like probably to his credit, he was a probably more balanced executive. Than I might be now um, in terms of like he left the office at five o'clock and he he was home and we would be playing catch or, you know, uh, or playing basketball together. And and he really did a good job of uh, of being present as a dad while also being an executive.
2: Wow. So you mentioned uh, playing basketball. It's funny because I've mentioned this on the show before. I played basketball for two seasons in seventh and eighth grade. In seventh grade, I was the most improved player, which just meant I was the shittiest player on the team, Uh, which is not apparently the case in the NBA. When somebody is the most improved player, they're like badass. I believe at one point Jimmy Butler was. Um, But what I'm curious about is what piqued your interest in sports and, and how old were you when you started playing basketball?
1: Oh, I was a sports nut from the very beginning. And, and that's where I, I had two older brothers and my dad. They were all sports nuts. And we, we were going to Mets, Islanders, Knicks. You know, we were, we, it was a year round obsession. We were, it was just whatever season it was. That's what sport we were following. So yeah, early on, I was a kind of traditional football in the fall, basketball in the winter, baseball in the spring from, you know, through eighth grade. And then I just got mm-hmm. focused on basketball because it was probably the one i was i was I was best at um so yeah that was I was obsessed with it and I, I was like you know they my family makes fun of me like I was like an eighty year old man when I, I would wake up in the morning and I'd walk out in the driveway get the get the newspaper you know daily news or whatever I, you know, we were getting delivered and I read the sports section cover to cover uh while eating my cereal like that was what I did from like and literally probably from like six or seven. Like it was bizarre, wow. um, and I, I also like. I mean, again, to make myself sound like a nerd, like I would read like the world, the sports sports almanac, and like I was always obsessed with statistics and um, and just the history of sports. So it was. All, I don't know. I don't know what. I maybe mean, I guess. Just I was just my maybe my intellectual curiosity pushed me in that direction. But I was always super engaged with sports.
3: Ready to pop the question.
2: Yeah. Well, so as somebody who didn't continue playing sports in high school, uh, which to this day, I think is one of my regrets, because I feel like every single person I've ever talked to who was a athlete on a team in high school swears by the benefits of it, regardless of whether it led anywhere or not. For parents who are listening, and particularly for parents who are stuck with kids like me who are athletically inept, what would you say to them about encouraging their kids to play sports?
1: Well, okay. So I'll say this as a, as a person now who oversees an e-sports league, I would say I would encourage them to compete. Um, cause I can tell you, you know, you know, somewhat more personal to me is, you know, I have a son who has special needs. Um, and so he wasn't able to compete on the athletic field for quite a while. And now he actually, he does now swim for his high school and it was the first time he'd ever been on a sports team. And so, uh, it, it definitely, you know, I, I love watching him be a part of a team and it's incredible. And so, um, but I, I mean, for, for him and I, you know, you know, our equivalent of like my dad taking me to, to, you know, to, to see a Mets game and sit there and talk about like what was going on at life and school and, and having that kind of uninterrupted time together. Our equivalent was when, when he turned five, I think it was five. And he's now 15 to put it in perspective. Um, when he turned five, my wife got us gaming chairs. And so <laughs> if you came to our house on a weekend, you would see us playing, you know, playing games in many cases together, you know, uh, you know, kind of playing a game at the same time or playing 2K or playing one of, one of his kind of uh, more action games we play together. And to this day, you know, we still play 2K and oftentimes at night we'll play Fortnite together. Um, you know, so it's, it's uh, for us, that was our equivalent. And so-, and so mm and he learned competing i think a lot through through gaming actually and so uh, you know i do think you know, gaming is a is a great equalizer for you know if you don't necessarily have all the physical tools to compete on a, on an on an athletic field you know your whole life Yeah, yeah.
2: I I, want to go deeper into that because I think that we have sort of two narratives around video games, right? It's kind of like, oh, video games make kids lazy and inept, and you know, you hear things like, oh, Grand Theft Auto causes violence, which I personally, I don't believe any of that to be true. But I, of course, am biased because I have been playing video games. I think, as as far as I can remember, from the original Nintendo, which I'm curious about. How old were you when you started playing video games?
1: Um, I was an Atari kid, so. uh, I would say probably first grade, and and my oldest brother. That was where he and I were super tight. That way, like we were the two gamers in the house. Um, my middle brother didn't play uh, video games at all. He never got into it, but um, th- that was our thing. And so, yeah, I was I was an early uh, an early adopter to, to video games. Yeah,
2: well, so I think that one of the things I wonder, yeah, and I've asked a, a couple of different people this. Um, we had this guy Jeff Harry here who talked about the importance of play and. You, 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 as the commissioner of the 2K League, obviously, clearly probably think there are positive benefits to video games. So what are they? I mean, because you've probably been able to see this over a long stretch of time and have a bigger sample size than the average person.
1: Well, I, I think that, I mean, listen, I, if if you ask me this question and in my mindset, you know, when I first started playing video games, what, 1980 or so, um, it's just so different now because I mean, video. your video game experience now compared to when I started playing video games, when I started playing video games, you were in your room, you were by yourself, you were playing against AI, you know, to where fast forward to now, it, it's very communal. I, I mean, you know, when my son's playing, you know, if we're playing Fortnite, like, for, uh, great examples. So we, we play Fortnite at times, like he and I will play and my my college roommate and his son, we will team up at nighttime after we eat dinner and like we'll play squads, we'll be the four of us against you know twenty four other teams playing you know against us and competing against us in Fortnite. Like it's actually a pretty cool connectivity piece. I mean, it, it, and so I you know I, I think you know if in the if, if if in the wrong hands you know you know un unwatched, sure you can go down. You know you know you can get too into it and you need some balance. And, and we and we definitely encourage that. Listen, my my son is super active. He works out, he swims, you know, he's, he's very active. And so we try to limit the number of hours he's uh, playing games, but I mean, I I actually think it's a very, um, it allows, it has a sense of community much more so than gaming did when we were growing up.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I live with a roommate I live with now because of NBA 2k. So great. It's kind of hilarious that that's how we ended up living together, but um well let's let's talk about the trajectory of of your career. So where I want to start is uh, you know with six siblings, I always wonder now how the career advice that you get from your parents differs from sibling to sibling because I feel like basically every person that comes before you is is an experiment and then the parent fixes the mistakes they make on the previous one on the next one.
1: Yeah, it's 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 a great point. And, and so I go going back to my generational, you know, kind of theory earlier, I do think that my parents were much more in the camp of you're smart enough, go be a lawyer, like go get a good job. And and so you can provide for your family and and put your kids through school. And so that was their mindset. And so I, I do think that I've spent a lot of my years, you know, as I was starting my career and going through college and then early in my career, really breaking the mold of what they thought was possible and really what they thought was normal. And so you know, I think I did. I, I was just always very independent by nature. And so I was determined to make, you know, my career something I was passionate about and following my heart, which was I wanted to be in sports. I wanted to be connected to sports in some way. And so, you know, when I was in high school, you know, I mentioned my obsession with sports and consuming sports media. And I lived in New York at a time when sports radio became a huge medium. And I I was, I was listening to Mike and the Mad Dog and, 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 and that kind of WFAN in New York. And that, you know, at that point was more of a a local station. Um, and so my, my total dream going in sports was I wanted to be on sports radio and I wanted to be, you know, and that was my, that was my goal was my, it was my dream. And that was my first job in sports was, um, I mean, outside of like, you know, writings for, for, you know, yearbooks and, and local papers on sports. But when I was, I was in college, I did an internship for sports radio W E E I in Boston, uh, which was the sports, it was the equivalent of WFAN in Boston. And so I got a job, you know, I, I begged my way into that job. Uh, one of one a guy I knew at at Boston college was working there, um, on the production side. And I, I basically told him whatever I need to do, I will work for free, just get me in. And so my junior, junior and senior year of college, I got a job with them, um, and I will tell you probably one of the worst jobs in sports was my job was to sc- screen the calls coming in. So I, I would answer the I would answer incoming calls. I would kind of find out what somebody wanted to talk about, and then I would send them on to talk to the host. And it was the worst job you had like a sentence of like, "Hey, I want to talk about you know um, you know Barry Bonds," and then you sent that person through, and then they would get they'd get nervous. They'd start stuttering, and then the host would get mad at you for putting them through so it was it was a very, very tough job. Um, but that's what led me into sports though
4: mm,
2: wow, so I mean like I, I was just looking at your your LinkedIn profile. I mean you have this sort of you know interesting trajectory of, of you know being in charge of ticket sales going all the way to uh, team operations so numerous things so, so first thing, one, what are the lessons that you have taken from you know? working in the actual NBA that you've applied to 2K. Um, and how is it that a video game has had this much of an impact on our culture? And then, then I want to talk about specifically esports, like what actually goes into building an esports team and, and how you, know, you actually run a league. Like what, how does it differ from being, for example, David Stern or Adam Silver, <laughs> your job?
1: Sure. So, um, I mean, I mean, the 2K league offices are essentially inside the NBA office. So it, it's still, I mean, it's still very much a part of the NBA. Um, but what I think, and to his credit, what Adam Silver encouraged me to do was to to, to be nimble, to act like a startup. And and so I think um, you know, even though we 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 are inside the kind of the, the the mothership of the NBA, and we have a ton of influence and a ton of resources from the NBA, I think you know what was important for us and for me to make sure I did early on was I had to make sure we were very operational and we were very kind of like nimble and quick to make, quick to make adjustments and much more, uh, much more nimble and risky, frankly, than the NBA could ever be. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so I think that was a, that was a really early on. I knew we we had to be that way because just to be functional, you know, um, you know, we only had eight people running the entire operation first season. Um, wow. so. Yeah, yeah. So it was a, it was a small operation it's, and, um, and now we're, you know, you know, more than double that size, but it's, it's, um, so yeah, I mean, so that's on the NBA side, as far as what I've learned, I think just learning the value of leadership, um, and then the value and because we're a smaller group, the importance of instilling confidence in your team and, letting you know removing obstacles letting them do their thing and then getting out of their way because frankly we had so much to do with such a small group that you know, i never could have been effective if i was trying to hold everyone's hand
3: a lot can happen in three years like a chat bot maybe your new best friend
2: Yeah. So what does the actual business model of the 2K League look like? And, and, you know, how does it compare? Because I'm guessing, you know, unlike sort of, you know, the traditional NBA, it's not, you know, a bunch of uh, college students being recruited to play college ball and then being drafted to the NBA, right? So what does the business model look like? Like, How do you guys make money?
1: So that, that isn't very, that is not too dissimilar from the traditional sports model. So it's media rights, it's sponsorship, it's retail, uh, merchandise. Um, you know, so, you uh, and, and then eventually it'll, it'll be Tim more ticket sales. I mean, we, you know, we were kind of steering in that direction, uh, last season, but unfortunately COVID didn't allow for it. So, um, uh, but, but ticket sales is definitely a, a possible revenue stream. Um, mm-hmm. so on the business side, it's actually not too dissimilar from kind of the, the NBA and its affiliate leagues. Um, where, where it's tricky is we, we at the center, we do essentially the recruiting and the player identification for the teams. And so, for example, you know, the first season we opened up tryouts and we had 72,000 people try out. (laughs) Holy crap. Yeah. I mean, so you had 72,000 people trying out for 102 spots. And so, uh, you know, to their credit, 2K um, de- developed what we call the Combine, which was a a, a kind of standalone mode in the game. Um, that, you know, allowed players to go in and play five on five, and so uh, and kept everybody on an even playing field. Like you mentioned, like trying to build teams and make it make it fair. We actually have, you know, where every player was a 90 rated player. And, you know, they could go in and compete against, you know, other 72,000 people. And so, um, we, you know, and again, as far as our resources being limited, what we did was we hired a third party company to essentially build an algorithm that would evaluate players. And, and we were, we were evaluating, you know, 60 different plus stats across every single player in every single game. Um, I mean literally millions of data points and so things down I mean and it was much much deeper than points rebounds and assists I mean we were evaluating you know telemetry data and you know how how good was you know how perfect is their jump shot how good is their release point versus perfect um, you know their their defensive efficiency their offensive efficiency like you know the, the uh, how often did the, you know did they go for a steal and put themselves out of position? Like it's a pretty amazing amount of data we were, we're capturing and still capturing. And so um, all of that kind of rolled into, you know, we identified about 250 players and then narrowed that down to 102 on draft day. And so our, our first season, we actually declared the 102 players and the teams drafted them. Um, now we've actually, we, we've evolved our system every year. Uh, this past season we had, I, think, I believe it was 285 players, um, that were eligible for the draft to be, to be drafted. And we had roughly, I think, uh, you know, about 60 some odd spots, uh, that we, that were drafted, um, on top of the current players who are on rosters. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's, so, and, and, and also, uh, to the player identification point, we've also added other elements to our player ID process, such as, you know we we now have tryouts in London we've had a tryout in Hong Kong in Seoul Korea um you know and so we've gone and done tryouts in other countries to identify players around the world because you know if you are if you're in Australia you know trying to compete against north american players your your connect your connection is a huge disadvantage mm, uh, awesome. so we had to fi- we had to find we had to find great players and actually invite them uh, you know, two tryouts, you know, physically um, or remotely in different regions, um, okay. so, so that we were able to identify great players around the world. And so the end result is now we have ten international international players on our team rosters. Um, and, you know, including this year we had our first from Spain, our first from Australia. Um, so we you know we were identifying international players. And the other player diversity piece, which is a really interesting story, is is on, on with with getting women in the game. Uh, uh, and wow. finding women because what was amazing was our first season um, you know we had the 72,000 players try out we got down to the final 250 and we only had one woman and and that woman unfortunately did not go from the 250 down to the 102 she was eliminated in that process um, but it, we immediately said okay well why why is that like well you know we you know there's no reason why a woman can't compete in 2k um, why would we not have any women in the league and so we, we immediately begun, we began our Women in Gaming initiative. And so um, we, did, we did research, we did focus groups with top women, with our GMs. And what we found from the women was that when they played and competed at the highest levels, all of our players wear headsets. I mean, if you're going to play at, at, a, at an elite level, you have to have a headset and communicate with your teammates. And what happened was as soon as they kind of identified as a woman with a woman's voice... They got passed the ball less. Wow. You know, they, they were harassed at times. It was it was a kind of a toxic environment for them, and so they were getting passed the ball less often than uh, than 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 other their male their male counterparts. And so as a result, if, if we're evaluating statistics, of course their statistics going to be are going to be less if you know if they're not getting as many opportunities. And so um, so we then in season two, you know, we worked with our analytics company to start um, analyzing players, how effective they were when they had, when they actually got the ball. And so, mm. and so it, it totally changed the dynamic of our analysis. We ended up with, uh, you know, with um, a, a couple women in our draft pool. We, we had our first woman actually drafted by, uh, uh, by, by, you know, the Golden state warriors and warriors gaming squad. Um, and so we, we kind of broke that barrier in season two but our our work was far from done. Like we still had a lot of work to do, and so uh, in season three we had four women in the draft pool, and none of them got drafted. And so that that immediately was like, okay, there, there's something broken here. Like we're not we're doing we're not doing something right. We're not good enough. And so um, this past year, this past off season, our women's in ga- women and in gaming initiative. You know, what we found out from GMs and coaches was they weren't playing against the top level players. There wasn't enough of a Uh, you know uh, know, enough information or examples of seeing them compete against the top players in the world. So we actually, you know, we, our women in gaming initiative became a much more robust process. It was, we actually went out and we um, we helped identify and and helped create two top women pro-am teams. So two five on five teams that we, you know, we helped, they entered into the top tournaments. They were competing at the highest levels. Uh, we so we did that, and then secondarily we set up these remote gameplay sessions where we had, you know, the known best women players in the two K scene competing with uh, with our some of our top two K league pros. Um, you know, coaches and GMs came in and watched. Uh, we had we had a couple of former uh, a former two K league players, pros uh, coaching the teams, um, and so that was kind of a second step. And then the third step, which we've now done two of them, two two, sec- two two consecutive years, is we created a women in gaming development camp, where we had the top twenty women players that were known in the two K league two se- K scene. Uh, we had you know WN WNBA players come talk to them. We had top top esports uh, pros, uh, top influencers, kind of talk to them about how to navigate you know social media and streaming, and then we had them gameplay a ton against each other and also with 2K league pros. And so all of those kind of steps now this past year, um, you know, we had a, we you know, uh, we had, uh, I believe it was nine or 10, I think it was 10 women we had in the draft pool and we had two women drafted this, this year. And so now we have two women currently in the league. Um, and so as I will say, like we still have plenty of work to do and we're not checking the box by any stretch of the imagination. But what our goal is really is to just, one, get the best players in the world. And we think a diverse pool is, a, is a stronger pool. Um, but then it's number two is we're trying to normalize women in the 2K League scene. And so, it, it, you know, certainly we want women players. But if you watch our broadcast, we have several women on our, on our broadcast team. You know, if you look at our, our executive team, You know, some of our top executives of the league are are women. And so we're just trying to normalize women in the 2K League scene more broadly. And I think we have taken significant steps in the right direction, but we still have a lot of work to do.
2: Yeah. Well, it's so it's funny. Uh, I wanted to ask you about sort of the skill development aspect of this because you know my roommate when he gets on these winning streaks, jokingly you know declares himself as the NBA god. And I was like, yeah, you want to see how good you are? Go play a teenager online. Then we'll find out how good you really are. Uh, but you know, I remember talking to a friend of mine, and as I was joking with you before we hit record, that you know, I, I, if I ever had a fu money, the first thing I would do was buy an NBA basketball team. And one of my friends said. You could potentially buy an esports team," he said. "That's probably more realistic and probably where we're headed next, anyways. So, for the esports athletes, like <clears throat> what goes into you know their own skill development? Because I doubt it's sort of the way that my roommate and I play. My guess is they're probably very del- like they probably have what you know Anders Ericsson would have called deliberate practice. Like they're probably doing things to improve.
1: Totally, and, and I will say, I mean that, that's kind of also that you know one is they just play a lot. They they get they 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 do have an, a unique skill set. They generally speaking have an incredibly high basketball IQ, um, and so they begin to compete at the highest levels. And you know and, and you know how it is. I mean, first you start by being the best player you know on your block, then your school, then your area. Like you just start competing more and more at higher levels, and so that scene kind of organically happens also. Um, but I, I I will say as far as esports goes. I think we're at the early stages of what the right training is for an esports athlete because I actually think it's, and we're we're starting to see it more developed. But I, I think this notion of like just put in the hours and become a master and like just grind and grind and grind and that's what's going to make you great. I think that's old school. I mean, it's kind of an archaic perspective. Like, I mean, you have to think that you know. Um, you know, we encourage our players like they work out. Many of them work out together and physically are physically fit. You know, their nutrition is a consideration. Certainly your eyesight, your eyesight and your hands are, you know, it's, it's, you know are as important as anything. Like, you know, it's the equivalent of like jumping ability and speed for, you know, an NBA player. Um, mm-hmm. so, so I think it's, I think we're at the early stages um, of really what truly good professional skill development is in esports um and i will say it's interesting is so the only non nba owned team in our league are you know so we had we sold our first franchise outside of the nba family last year to the genji tigers of shanghai uh and genji wow. ha- genji has you know uh, and this number's probably changed now but th- at the time they had you know they had 11 different esports teams across seven different games and what what they were, and one of the reasons we actually decided to partner with them and actually have them buy a franchise is they were you know somewhat tip of the spear in terms of player development in esports, and so they actually they actually run an esports school in Seoul, Korea, um, and it's truly a remarkable facility. I've been there, um, you know, and, and they are developing kind of a, a balanced. Attack to you know to educate they educate they they have education they have you know obviously esports um, development and so we we thought they brought a really unique kind of skill set to the NBA Two K League and so uh, and, w- and one of the things they actually are helping us do is identify Two K players in China to kind of help bring the league and, and continue to grow the league. Yeah,
2: so <clears throat> there are a couple of things I wonder about. Sort of uh, somebody who's got a potentially promising career in esports. So. I, I remember very distinctly, we were stuck at the Dallas airport for three or four hours uh, after we were teaching a seminar, but my roommate and I, and we just happened to walk by this section. We was like, wait a minute, they have a whole video game section here. And we <laughs> walk up to the guy, we're like, do you guys have NBA 2K? We have three hours. And he's like, yeah, of course we have 2K. So we <laughs> literally paid 40 bucks to play a game that like we had at home uh, for a couple of hours. But he had started telling us about the fact that now eSports is leading to people getting college scholarships, you know, and, and all sorts of things. So <clears throat> there are two questions I have about this. Um, And typically, like when you look at a lot of the NBA athletes, uh, or for that matter, many of the professional sports like the NFL, a lot of these people come from fairly underprivileged backgrounds, right? Tough neighborhoods, um, poor families. And that is often the path out of poverty for so many of them. But when you're talking about something like eSports, an Xbox is not a cheap purchase for the average person. Um, You know, a copy of 2K at this point is about $100. Um, I only know this because I remember thinking, I was like, you know, the target market for video games is not really kids, it's people my age, because for us, $100 is not a big deal. Like, we have the disposable income to to spend, video, spend on video games. So what role do you think that uh, privilege plays in the prospects of all these people?
1: Um, I don't know. I, I actually, I don't think, to many of our pros... Come from very challenging, you know, up upbringings, um, and, and in many cases, very kind of uh you know, um very like I would say, very tough backgrounds in terms of like where they grew up and what they had access to. And I think, um you know, I I, I think you know, two K, you know, you're right, a console, you know, is is not inexpensive. But I, you know, I, I'm I, I do think a lot of players, you know, maybe share, you know, share them early on as kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think 2K does a pretty good job of, you know, making, you know, you know even last year, I think you know, they had the game available for a much lower cost, you know, uh, you know, kind of in the latter part of the, of the NBA season. Um, so I, you know, I think it's, you know, you have to be creative to kind of try to find the right deal, I guess. But I, I you know, I will say like our, we do not see privilege being an advantage. Um, at least our, our league makeup, it's, that's not been the case.
2: Okay, cool. Um, so, out of morbid curiosity, uh, this is for my own personal reasons. Can you give me any suggestions on how to put an end to this like fifteen game losing streak that I've been on?
1: <laughs> I don't. What's What's the breakdown? I mean, are you are you are you giving up too many threes? Are you are you breaking down on defense, not getting boards? Like, I what,
2: well, I think I'm. I would probably say I'm not passing enough, and I'm probably shooting way too many threes.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Well, listen, that, that sounds like a problem. I mean, you may have to get into the. Uh, you know, you get, get, get a little practice in on your on your on your three ball uh, or, or, or maybe change the sliders when, when he's not looking. So, you know, they're easier to make.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, you mentioned that you, you had sold a team. I mean, so I, th- this is, you know, back to that idea, like is, you know, for somebody who's aspiring to own a sports team, as, as crazy as that might sound, because most of us are not, you know, Mark Cuban, you know, with enough money to buy the Mavericks our eSports teams going to be something that we start to see over and over. And like, what is happening on sort of the you know, college recruiting path? Like, do you guys recruit from college and, and is, what's happening in terms of uh, opportunities that are being created outside of just playing the game? Uh, what kinds of opportunities has this created for people who play?
1: So uh, kind of a little bit similar to my point on, on player development. I, I still think eSports it's such early days that everyone's trying to figure out what their place is in esports, and so I, I think it's gonna it's gonna continue to become a more prominent recruiting tool for colleges. I think you know you're gonna you're gonna you know you already are starting to see it, but seeing you know kind of college programs develop as you know as kind of a tool to recruit students. Because I will say, I mean, like the generally speaking, you know, esports um, enthusiasts are very tech savvy. They you know, they generally are high IQ. Um, so it's, it's actually, it's, it's an interesting audience for colleges to get in front of. And so I, I think you're going to continue to see that develop. And then, and I even say, we're trying to figure this out right now is, it, you know, we're trying to put a little more a little more structure around just the grassroots competitive scene. Because in order for us to be successful, it's not enough for us to have the top 138 players in the world. You know, we, we have to continue to, to develop that next part, of, the, and the, frankly, the wider part of the funnel, which is the, you know, over 2 million players that are literally playing the game, like yourself probably, 2 million players playing every day that are, are super competitive, but maybe they're not good enough to be in that 138. Um, but as we grow, like, we want to make sure, like, that is a big part of our audience, and so we want to make that group feel connected to the 2K League and have a reason to watch it. And so that's that's really a a big a big area of focus for us is trying to figure out you know just how do we appeal to that that next tier of competitive of of the competitive scene and so um, so yeah I I think I I think your point on colleges I think we're seeing high schools also now I was going to ask you
2: about that that was my next question is is this starting to make its way into primary education
1: it definitely is And, and I think some of it is also trying to figure out what's the right entry point for a school and and I, I said I will say like 2K we're very lucky in that um listen 2K is it's rated E for everyone um you know it, it's you know it's it's not as controversial a choice um as some other games might be for especially for a high school um mm-hmm. so I do think you're going to see 2K's kind of grassroots community continue to grow as esports grows and then the other really I mean I would call this a significant advantage is because in two k and the nBA two k game is going to be the best basketball game in esports um and and, and it's going to be for a long time because you know you just you know obviously given the fact that we you know um it's it's it is the best game and so as opposed to you know some of the other games out there it's a very competitive marketplace and, and to mm-hmm. and to and to maintain your status as the game to play you know kudos to the games that are that are on top right now but they they always have kind of other you know game developers kind of you know creating the what what the what's next i mean you know fortnite really you know was kind of come on the scene the last you know couple of years um you know but it it, it was a, a minute ago that pubg was pubg was dominating that space and then fortnite came along and it has been incredibly successful at building an audience
2: mm, wow Well, so you know the the thing that uh, I had noticed, and I think I'd mentioned this to you, is that I've been playing this game for twenty years, and I couldn't believe that when I sat down and looked at it, I was like, "Wait a minute! I have played this game since two K one." And my my friend Ryan Holiday, whose work you might be familiar with, written a bunch of different books, all of which are New York Times bestsellers. He wrote this book called Perennial Seller, which is about how to make something that is timeless and something that lasts. And you know, I know, like you said when you think of you know, a basketball video game, 2K is the first thing that anybody defaults to. What do you think it is that has led to that kind of uh, dominance, the sort of perennial seller nature of 2K? And what do you think creative people can take away from that?
1: I would say for 2K, um, it's to their credit, is like, you know, there's not many games that come out with an annual version of the game. And, and so, uh, you know, most, m- most times there's, there's a couple of years of kind of, you know, of breathing room in between releases. And so to their credit, I mean, the 2k development team, like they are, they have an insatiable appetite to continue to improve the game and whether, you know, it, and they've, you know, even the last couple of years the way in which they added, you know, they added the neighborhood and, and the whole neighborhood experience and like, you know, and, and having different modes of the game to play. If you want to go play in the park. If you want to play team up, you want to play pro-am like there's so many different modes of the game to, you know, and it's the whole, I would say for marketers in general, it's the entire movement towards direct to consumer and really allowing the consumer to dictate their experience. And they want it to be customized. They want it to be personal. And I think 2K has done a brilliant job over the last several years of doing exactly that, uh, of really customizing what the, the player wants. Um, and and so I think that's really been one of the and I will say like it's it's one of the reasons why like the they're it's not only a great selling game it's also a game that has incredible engagement numbers I mean a lot mm-hmm. of these players are playing thirty plus hours a week and you don't that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't happen unless you are creating something that's engaging enough. Yeah. Well,
2: uh, it's funny you say that because I think I'd be horrified if I actually looked at how many hours we play every week. So, you know, there's, we have three, the three of us that live together, two of us play it and our other roommate hates the fact that we play this game so damn much.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. No, it's true. And and then, um, you know, the, the other point I was going to make, and I didn't touch on earlier, which you were, you were, you were kind of talking about, and I think I might've gone off on a different tangent. Is you mentioned kind of you know the the um, the value of, of of esports and how it's changing kind of the educational experience. The one biggest I would say the biggest surprise I've had of the 2K League is that listen, certainly we've identified the best 138 players in the world. They're incredible and and and, and you know and they are amazing at what they do. But we've created you know probably at least that number, if not more. Of jobs connected to the 2K League, and so um, whether you are, you know, you a, know, a, 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 what traditional sports calls announcers, we call casters. So if you're doing play-by-play or color commentary, you're doing sideline reporting. You know, we have an entire broadcast team. You know, we have wow. content content creators. We have you know media. There's obviously sponsor and all the and then all the traditional jobs of sponsorship sales. You know, marketing. You know, community development, etc. So. I will say that like I think where e where I find esports very exciting. For someone who's been in the sports industry for, you know, over two decades, what I find exciting about esports is that it's it's truly creating a whole new branch of the business that's creating a ton of jobs. Yeah.
2: Uh well, I, I before we hit record, you had told me that uh you had known Scott for twenty years and the story of how you met was actually cool. So how did you guys meet?
1: Yeah. So my, my first, uh, so I was an intern for the Boston Celtics after I graduated Boston college, I interned for the Celtics, got a job in, in, in uh, um, and then they helped me get a job with the Detroit Pistons and palace sports, um, uh, you know, right out right out of, uh, right, right after soon after I graduated college. And so I was selling for the Pistons and I was, you know, one of probably, I mean, it was a, it was a massive sales organization, probably 60 sellers. And so Scott, um, he actually was uh, was in the in a group called Team Marketing and Business Operations, which is a kind of a, McK- a McKinsey style, um, you know, consulting group for the NBA that David Stern started, and uh, and it was you know to help the teams with you know sharing best practices and and being effective off the court, and so Scott was essentially the Pistons representative, so he would come into market and visit, and so. I was just a, a generic seller, and so normally I would not get the opportunity. Generally, uh, you know, someone like Scott would come in and he'd meet with all the senior executives. And so, for some, you know, he he and I actually, you know, we played hoops uh, in the morning. He, you know, he would try to organize a basketball game when he came to town, and so we actually got to we we, we competed against each other. We guarded each other, kind of playing hoops before before the, the workday began. And then he you know, he agreed to, to give me a half hour and meet with me. And so that really started, like, from that point, he kind of helped connect me. I took a job with the Milwaukee Bucks and then eventually, you know, in New Orleans with, with then the Hornets. And then um, uh, he, I became very uh, connected to that Team operation. And then ironically, uh, you know, um, I actually took I I left the team side of the business after 12 years. when I was with the Atlanta Hawks and Thrashers in Atlanta. I actually ironically took a job in Team Bow in the NBA league office, you know, ideal call. It probably was 10 years after I met Scott.
2: Wow. Wow. Um, I feel like I could talk to you about this for hours on end, but that's only because I'm obsessed with this game. Probably not as much as my, you know, I doubt my listeners are as obsessed with it as I am. Uh, <laughs> so I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews, the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: What's the last questions on, I mean, you, you stumped me.
2: Yeah. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I think it's legacy. Um, I think it's, it's the impact you have on the people around you. Um, you know, and and, and I, and I, hope that my team or my, or people I've worked with and, and, and managed over the years, um, one thing and frankly, I actually may have got this a little bit from Scott and, and learning from him and other mentors I've had over the years is the you know um I am very uh obsessed with talent and the development of talent and I, and, and listen I will be very, I will be very constructively critical of my team, but I think I get a lot of latitude with them because they know I care about them. I mean, I, I genuinely love my team, and they know it. And so, as a result, I think they know that like I'm I'm coming from a good place, and and they can trust me, and they know that I'm just trying to help them get better and make a bigger impact and think bigger. And so, um, I would say, like you know, it's it's a uh, if you're not constructively helping your team your team grow, you're you know you, you know you're not you're not giving them your best. And and so, I, I would say like that's a, that's a pretty that's a pretty big trait, I think, of, of leaders, you know, that I think they should make sure they, they, uh, they, you know, they stay true to themselves, but they make sure that they're helping their, their team get better. Hmm.
2: Wow. Wow. Um, well, this has been amazing and fascinating and funny uh, and insightful all at the same time. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom and insights with all listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work and everything else that you're up to?
1: Uh, listen i mean obviously our, our n b a two kleaguecom dot com is our website but i would say that you know i'm uh, i am very active on twitter um i I'm, i two k league m d uh on twitter um and so, so feel free to follow me there and um you know i uh you know i'll try I'll try i'll try to put some uh, some some thought into into, uh, you know, maybe some nuggets of wisdom. I, I, I will say I now follow you. So I'm looking forward to, <laughs> to, to seeing what else. Uh, I, I listened to Scott's interview. I want to listen to some of the, some of the others you've been had on your podcast.
2: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
4: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm.